Again, it's such a blessing to be with you. I've seen some faces that I haven't seen in person for over a year, and it's, it's emotional to see uh, you, you walking in, and it's a blessing to uh, think of how we've been able to stay connected online, but also that we get that opportunity to still connect online with many of our members, but also get a chance to see uh, some faces together. So thank you for joining us for Easter this morning. Today, we recognize that Christians all around the world are remembering this moment, the fact that the tomb was empty. And death is something that I think we all uh, are going to face at some point. Perhaps you're facing it more poignantly this year than ever before. A moment that I think of when I think of facing my own death was when I went skydiving in college. It was a crazy experience, and I remember going, I was in Germany that year studying, and I went with some friends to Switzerland, and when we arrived at this field, kind of in the middle of of nowhere, it was beautiful, but this field was out away from uh, the main town where we were. I felt the nerves building up as I um, see that this plane that's off in the distance, and they said that like, you're jumping tandem because for the first 10 or so jumps when you do skydiving, you have to jump with somebody else. Like, I still don't think I'd feel comfortable doing it myself at any point, but I remember standing in this field and going over to this guy who I was supposed to jump with who literally had his life in my hands, and so I walked over, and he kind of wanted to like, get to know that person. So I said, hey, you know, what, what's your name? And he said, my name is Hans. And I said, all right. And then I said, where are you from? And Hans just pointed off in the distance, and he said, from the mountains. And I was like, all right, well, Hans and I don't have a whole lot to talk about, probably because I don't speak the mountain language. Um, For those of you that know me, I'm very not mountainous or uh, good with my hands. So Hans and I stood there awkwardly for a few minutes until it was time to go. And I will always remember the anxiety and, and pressure building in me as the plane started to go up in the air, and you know that eventually you're going to jump out of it. Those are some of the most vivid 20 to 30 minutes of my life, thinking of what it was to be in that moment. And then just as we start to level off, Hans leans forward and he says, sit on my lap, which I had to then like get onto his lap and like (laughs) get strapped to him. And uh, we're sitting there, and here's a picture of me and Hans uh, that uh, you can check out. There I was, much, much younger. Hans does look a little bit like, like a mountain man. And I, I remember that feeling, and those, those of you, how many of you have been skydiving in the room? Like, am I the only one? Oh my goodness, wow, okay, well, um, you should do it sometime. It's an interesting experience. And uh, I, I remember, like, you, like, lean back, and then you just lean forward and, and fall, and it's a very unbelievable experience, and the humorous part about the ending for me, as we were coming towards the, um, the field, we were just about 30 seconds, Hans started saying, lift your legs, lift your legs, and for some reason, we were, like, strapped the wrong way, and of the group of 15 of us that jumped that day, I'm the only one who, when we hit the earth, I just fell and just hit face, face down, but I'll always remember the, the moment of that as, in, in a real way, I faced my death as a 19-year-old in a way that I never really had before. And perhaps during this year in COVID, perhaps you've struggled with it personally, or you just know someone really personally who struggled with it. Perhaps you've wrestled with it for the first time. It's just a human thing that humans have, have thought about and really contemplated forever. The pyramids in Egypt are just very, very large tombs. The Taj Mahal, which is one of the seven new wonders of the world, was a 
emperor who was building this for his wife who passed away. So if you think you're romantic, like it's pretty hard to beat that. Like if you're, let me build the Taj Mahal for you. I thought my engagement was pretty elaborate, but I guess that wasn't enough. Throughout human history, humans have wrestled with this moment. Perhaps you've wrestled with it even more than I have. And yet the Christian story is about one who saw death, faced it, and came out on the other side. What I find so interesting about the four Gospels, the four Gospels are the stories of uh, Jesus' life, ministry, his death, and, and resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right at the beginning of the New Testament. And each of the four Gospels, as they tell the stories, if you were to just read it, and perhaps you've, you've never read those accounts before, but you should this week if you haven't, but if you're trying to read those with new eyes, the one word that I think would come to mind is chaos. It's just crazy. Everyone's running around. Nobody knows what to do. They didn't expect him to come back to life, which is a bit tragic because he kept telling them he was going to come back to life, but they just didn't expect it. And so you have people just running all over the place. One of my favorite things is John in John chapter 20 says, I was running to the tomb and I outran Peter. Just FYI, it's no big deal. Like there was somebody alive, like came, rose out of the tomb, but just FYI, I'm a little bit faster than Peter. And so there's like all, all this stuff that's going on. And it's because nobody was expecting this to happen. Even his closest disciples, who again, he's told many, many times, they just don't get it. People don't undie. On the first Easter, people weren't wearing pastels and big hats and doing an Easter egg hunt. They were not prepared for it. And something interesting that all four Gospels mention is the first people who who see this are women. And this to us seems like, okay, whatever, that's not that big of a deal, but it's absolutely a huge deal. In that time, women's testimonies like, weren't allowed in court. So that was the way that women were viewed in that time in Rome, in that place. So women weren't allowed to testify in court, and all four Gospels tell us it was women who came and found the tomb empty. Like, to me, that may be one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection, because if you are, are trying to like, make up a story that happened, you don't say that women saw it first, because that's just not how you would have expected it. In fact, there's a second century critic of Christianity named Celsus uh, who says this. He said, who saw this? A hysterical female, as you say? And I think Celsus was a single man, because uh, that's not exactly how you should talk about women. But that's the way, that this is a critic of Christianity, as these, these documents are starting to go around, as people are like understanding what it was that the resurrection meant. And this guy says, it's unbelievable. There's no way. There's just no way that we should trust the accounts, because Women saw it again as you think about this story, and perhaps you're thinking about it for the first time, or perhaps you're thinking about it for the thousandth time. What you should recognize is it's just chaos. Everybody's running around. Nobody's sure what to do. And nobody expected him to come back. And in fact, later in the Gospel of Matthew, one of the things that's fascinating to me is as they are worshiping the the resurrected Jesus, there's this really weird sentence that says that as they are worshiping, some of them doubted. There are parts of this story that are just unbelievable. I'm like, why is that in there? Unless it happened. This moment, as we think about what the message is of Easter, 
is about we as Christians recognizing that our faith isn't built on like some teachings or a book. It's built on this event happening. The tomb is empty. One of my favorite passages on the resurrection is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is towards the end of the book of 1 Corinthians, a book that Paul wrote to this church in Corinth as he's dealing with all these issues that this church is having. And he ends with chapter 16, but right before chapter 16, which is just like some goodbyes at the end, in chapter 15, he gives just like a giant punch on this is what your life should be centered on, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's some fantastic stuff that I'm going to talk through just a little bit right now. So starting 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, Paul says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you will have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So Paul, as he's concluding this very important letter to this church, he says, this is the foundation of our faith. This is the center of who we are as believers. That Christ died according to the scriptures, that then Christ was raised. This is the center of who we are, that Christ conquered death. And I love how then Paul proves it. He says, and, and just FYI, there's some people who you could go talk to. First he appeared to Peter and then the apostles and then like 500 other people. And that is a little bit lost for us. I wish I had a person that I could go to and say, hey, does that whole thing check out? But as Paul is writing this, he, he's writing this to People who would have been able to disprove this. Like, okay, you know, there's 500 people. Where are they? And Paul says, go, you know, talk to Sam, the sandwich maker. You know, he was there. Whatever it is, like, go, go talk to one of those people because they saw it. Go interact with that person. Yeah, go, go talk to James. Go talk to that person. They saw the risen Lord. If you don't believe me, go ask them yourself. And early Christians lived and died often horrific deaths because they had a different sense about death. And the church was formed and it brought people together you wouldn't expect. One of the things that I love about our church is our diversity I love that we're a family. I love that we have some kids in the room who are talking right now. That's wonderful. I, I love that because church is an opportunity for us of all ages to interact and get to know each other. I love that about our church because that is the center of the faith, that it is for all people. It's not just for the adults. It's not just for white people. It's not just for black people or Asian people. 
for people of all backgrounds. It's for all people, and it is about coming together. That's one of the most radical things about the New Testament, because there wasn't a place like this in the ancient world. If you were Roman and an elite, you stayed with Roman elites. If you were Roman and you were a slave, you stayed among slaves. Like that is just the way the world works. It was very divided. I know that we often think that our world is, is divided right now, and in some ways it is. But Rome, the place that Jesus came to, was extremely divided. And all of a sudden, this group of people shows up. And it doesn't matter what your role is outside of the church. Inside the church, you are all one. That is unbelievable news. And things that, that people didn't necessarily believe. This is a whole new concept in human history. I love the way that, that Jesus ministers and gathers this group of disciples. Something that I often try to mention is that in Jesus' group of disciples, there's one named Simon the Zealot. To be a zealot meant that you thought that like, the teaching of, of eventually the, the hope of the Jews was that a Messiah was going to come and overthrow Rome. And it's understandable because people were oppressed. They had to deal with Roman taxes. And so the thought of, of a zealot is when the Messiah comes, there's basically going to be this symbol and we're all just going to take over and there's going to be a Messiah who sits on a human throne just like King David once did. So Simon, the zealot, sits next to Matthew, the tax collector, who would have been like number one on a zealot's hate list. If you're a tax collector in that time, you are a Jew who is sold out to Rome and is taking taxes for Rome, often taking way more than you need to, so you could make a really comfortable living. And so just imagine the awkwardness of those meals where there's a zealot, who doesn't even really agree with Jesus' view of the world, and then there's a tax collector. How on earth are these groups of people supposed to be together? This isn't a Republican and a Democrat. It's way more intense than that. And all of a sudden, this new community is formed. And again, this is something that we take for granted, that people have rights and, and worth and value. And there's great value in our diversity, and there's great value in us being for each other and, and learning from different kinds of, of people. But this is a totally new idea in human history. And one of the great struggles of the early church that they are constantly working on and working through is how do Jews who have thousands of years of history and Gentiles function together? And I know a little bit of that because I'm a Church of Christ pastor, and Church of Christ had 200 years of history, and we've made some changes that are hard. It's, it's hard to, to figure out that. How do you move forward as this new community in some ways? And so Jews and Gentiles are, are figuring out how to live together. That's why much of the New Testament is written. Because if you are a Gentile and you haven't believed and done some of the things that a Jew has done before— how do you get in? And so one of the big debates is, do new believers, new converts have to get circumcised? And that would really cut down on the new converts class, I think. So like, they just have to be really careful as they figure all this stuff out that's extremely complicated. But because of what Jesus has done, there's this whole new community that forms. 
And I love how Paul mentions that. Go, go talk to some of the men. Go talk to some of the women that Jesus appeared to. It wasn't just a certain type of person that Jesus came back and revealed himself. Go, go talk to any of those 500 people. And they'll tell you that it happened. Then Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28. He says this, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death has come through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For in Adam all die, so in Christ we will all be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the firstfruits then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he's put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he's done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him and put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So Paul writes with this convicting idea that even death was destroyed in Jesus. That Jesus came out on the other side. Jesus said, it is finished, not I am finished. This work which God has called me to do, it's been accomplished. I know for us, we want to ask Paul questions. Hey, that, that sounds great. But 2020 and then on to 2021, it's been a hard year. There's a lot that we've dealt with, and perhaps you've dealt with and experienced death in a more vivid way, in a more practical way than ever. But Paul, I think, would, would look at us and have some questions for us. Paul lived at a time which you could pretty much argue was worse than this. The average person lived to age 36 in the time that Paul is writing this. He's writing at a time when other issues often came. Other pandemics came. And actually, the Christians were known early on. One of the reasons for the spread of Christianity early on is that when there were different health conditions that would sweep through places and people would often leave, the Christians were the ones who would go in because they didn't fear death. So as you want to ask, Paul, have you seen how hard this is? If you understand what we deal with, Paul would say, yeah, I, I understand that. But because of what Jesus has done, death doesn't have the last word. Another passage that I love is in Romans when Paul is writing, and he says, because of what Christ has done, we are more than conquerors. No matter what we face, we are more than conquerors. I do a, a competition with a, a few of uh, my friends uh, every year. Every year we try, and We've missed the last couple because of COVID, but we uh, do a thing. It's called the Tin Man. It's like the Iron Man, but tin because it's a little bit softer uh, than that. And we play five sports in one day, uh, softball, ultimate frisbee, basketball, golf, and bowling. And uh, we 
takes all day, you get together about 8 a.m., you're done about 7, and you put yourself and rank yourself, so based on how your rankings, you're put on teams all day. And so we did this, uh, one of my friends named Keith wanted to play for the first time, and Keith had gone to Brown University on a football scholarship, and uh, then decided that he didn't want to be on the East Coast, and he came back and played basketball, walked on to Pepperdine's basketball team. So he competed in two D1 sports, and the rest of us in the field are kind of like, meh. I mean, like, it's not, not all that good. And so there's 15 possible points that you can get during the day. You're put on teams based on your rankings, and the first time that Keith did it with us, he went 15-0. and So we're like, all right, let's, let's see what happens next year. And so the next time that Keith participated the following year, we stacked the teams against him. Like, we made sure, like, hey, like, kind of know who the worst one is. Like, sometimes it's me, sometimes other people. Let's put him with Keith this time. And the next time, even completely with it stacked against him, Keith went 13-2. and two. And then Keith moved to Arizona, so we were thankful for that. No, we, <laughs> but I, I remember, like, seriously, we were trying to do the rankings and to try a little bit to keep Keith from dominating uh, again, and still he just crushed us. And it was like Paul is describing with Jesus conquering death. Death throws its best at Jesus, and Jesus walks out the other side and says, you should see the other guy. Because death isn't going to have the final word. And again, Easter promises that death doesn't get the final say. And it's so convicting to me that as you read these early accounts of what was happening and what was going on, there's so much confusion and chaos because they weren't expecting it. And it probably makes Jesus sad because he tried to teach on it over and over again. But as a pastor, I know that happens. Sometimes you have to say things a lot of times to get people to really let it sink in. So I understand that it's a little bit crazy for us to look at, but it's not what, what they were expecting. And the tomb is empty, and because of that, we are more than conquerors. I have a friend named Jenna. Jenna, if you want to come up, Jenna uh, has been tuning into our live stream for a while, and it's been fun to get to know some of uh, our new members that have been part of the live stream. They're like, wow, you're not just a TV preacher. Yeah, it's weird. I'm not just a TV preacher. I used to actually do this, do this in person. But Jenna is uh, someone who I've just been really inspired. If uh, you ever want to have someone ask you really good questions, she is an amazing question asker. And we've been studying scripture together, and it's just been, been a lot of fun to get to know uh, her, her story a bit and her faith background. And I specifically wanted to ask her to come share a little bit because she participated in Lent for the first time ever. Um, and so congratulations for Thank making you. it through that. Go ahead and tell everybody, what, what did you give up for Lent this year? I gave up coffee, which was the hardest thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so congrats to that. that that's an, an amazing achievement. Did you have some already today? Yes, and I'm like, I'm <laughs> not used to it. Just, just, uh, just a little bit jittery. Yeah, I, I wanted to have, have her share because I, I was just thinking it was, it was helpful that you got to have that experience. What did it teach you, giving up coffee, something that's very meaningful to you for this period? Um, what did it teach you about 
self-denial and the importance of it and all that stuff? Yeah, well, yes, it was definitely a struggle because this was my first time doing Lent, but it was so rewarding. And um, I guess I learned two big lessons, and the first one was what it really meant to give something up. And not for the sake of just giving it up, but for replacing it with something. So I took my coffee time and I replaced it with non-caffeinated tea. And that got easier, but then I wasn't fulfilled. I said, okay, this is fine, I can do this. What's next? What am I supposed to feel because I know this isn't it? So then I realized I could replace that tea time now with more reflection and with prayer and with song and with, my, like, with having a morning conversation with God. And that became the reason why I woke up in such a good mood every day. That is what I looked forward to. That made me more confident in myself and also confident with my relationship with God. And the second thing I learned was also how important it is to have a pattern in your life. Pattern that makes you struggle, pattern that you commit to and you devote yourself to. And then I was able to take that and mirror that with my relationship with God. And then I realized the significance of discipline and what that meant with my relationship with God and my view on religion and how important that was. Awesome. And how, how does it feel then to have this moment of, of celebration, you know, getting, getting to the end and then celebrating this, this moment of having your good friend coffee back in your life? Yeah, it's very, very rewarding. And um, it helps me celebrate this too with realizing um, that I need to be celebrating the struggle. And that in struggle, you could have a whole community and friends and family that support you. But it is truly you going through it alone with God. And the only way to rise above, to continue, is to go through it and face it head on and feeling everything it comes with. And now that Lent is over, I ask myself, okay, well, what rises on? What will I continue and how will I just continue to attribute that to religion and my faith in God? And it has been the most rewarding thing. And now I just need to drink some water so I stop taking. <laughs> but yeah, thank awesome. you for Well, thank me. you for sharing, Jenna. Thank I, you. I, I wanted, wanted to have... Have, have her share the, these reflections, and uh, perhaps you gave up something for Lent, perhaps you didn't, and you're like really celebrating because it's, it's feeling good because you get to have it again. But I, I wanted to have, have her share because I think those types of things, and she's very right, that discipline and thinking about self-denial. We live in a world that it's like, don't deny yourself anything as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. But when we have those moments when we deny ourselves, when we are willing to say, I, I, coffee isn't a terrible thing, but I want to give it up because I want to pursue something deeper. I want to learn something here. We're able to see that when we think about dying to ourselves, sometimes in, in small ways, we're able to connect with the life that comes from that. And we're able to see through something that perhaps feels a little bit insignificant, that we see this pattern of life coming from death. I think about in general, just the, the church in general, Jenna's story in general, because we as a church 
have been basically shut down for our live services until last week. For over a year, we had our online services. And Jenna is someone who we connected with because of that. We died in some certain ways as a church to the ways we had, had done things, and we got a chance to connect with new people. And we've seen some life out of some difficult times for us. God has been faithful with us. And Christ's power is shown when we deny ourselves and walk on that journey. Let's pray together before we get back to singing a bit. God, may we recognize what great power there is in self-denial. May we think about the ways that you're calling us to deny ourselves so that we may grow more in our relationship with you. Thank you that the tomb is empty and we get a chance to celebrate and remember that together. May we recognize that that power is still working in us and through us. Help us to connect with that every single day. In your son, Jesus, and I pray, amen.